Our text today is Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read what he, uh, sorry, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Let's pray. Please be seated and let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so incredibly grateful for your word. We're grateful for this day. Grateful for our ability to come together and study it. So, Lord, we pray that you impress it upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths, and we may carry it with us everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God hates divorce. If I was to sum up what I'm about to tell you and talk to you about for the next 30 or 40 minutes, it would be those three words God hates divorce. One of the results of sin and evil being brought forth into this world was due to a failure in marriage. In a union between husband and wife, Adam's failure to lead and Eve's temptation. Eve's sin brought death into the world. Genesis 3.19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The first sin in the world took place within the context of marriage. And we know that sin is death, which means divorce is death, and God hates death. Divorce is the death of a relationship, and God hates it. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan, or a Jew, or a Christian, or a Hindu, or a Muslim, God hates divorce. And it doesn't matter whether or not you really understood the implications of getting divorced. God still hates divorce. Death is a result of sin, and divorce is death. And God hates divorce even in the one place where it is allowed. But as we're going to see today, the issue with divorce is a sin issue, not a God issue. It's a people problem, not a God problem. What God has joined, let no man separate. Now, this is important for you also to know. That while God hates divorce and sin is involved in divorce, there's hope. Because we are hopeful people. And because God is life. In God, redemption is found. And there is no sin that is ultimately unforgivable except the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So while there are a variety of paths that have led all of you here to church and to faith in Jesus Christ, 
The point isn't the sin of your past. It is living out your redemption into the future, living as redeemed members of the body of Christ. And one of those critical areas to live is in marriage. Discipleship, the church, is training for marriage. I've been saying recently that we, we live in this pagan culture that glorifies death. It loves death. And, and actually, I would argue that pagan, godless cultures have always glorified death because death is the ultimate end for them in their minds, isn't it? It's terrifying because that's it. I'm dead. That's why all of the Enlightenment philosophies focus on your feelings. They focus on what you want, what makes you feel good. Make the most of whatever you do. YOLO, baby, you live once, so just do all the things because it's actually all about you. It's not. Our culture is obsessed with death. It venerates death. Look at how many dystopian movies and dystopian books and revenge porn movies they exist, that exist, right? We, as a culture, love death. And it's actually tragic because our culture that loves death venerates divorce. And I know many of you here know this personally, one way or another. Many of you have been affected by divorce one way or another. And our culture loves divorce. There are some really big divorce industries that exist because the broader church has not stood up for what God has said to be true. And there are a lot of people making a lot of money helping people destroy families and break up relationships. Aaron Wren, who just released a book called Life in the Negative World, which is a really good read, has done a lot of work looking at the importance of the family from a biblical perspective. He came to marriage and family and faith later in life. And he had been studying urban areas and, and the reason that people make decisions the way that they do prior to this. And so now his, his focus has, has changed and he's looking at and studying the broader church complex, our broader culture, and what's taking place. And so he talks about, and I know I've mentioned this before, how the world has gone through shifts in the way that it views Christianity. We began in what we would call the positive view of Christianity here in America, where Christian values and one's membership in a church would be seen as a societal good. If you told your boss at work that you were a Christian, he would be happy about that. It would say something about your, your trustworthiness, right? Your, your moral uprightness. And then we made a shift and a move into what he calls neutral world. That's a meh. My kids would call it mid. Meh. Who cares? It doesn't really matter whether you go to church or you don't go to church. It's not really positive or negative. You do you. Like, meh. We don't really care. It doesn't really affect my life. Just keep it in your backyard. And then they make this move to negative world, which is where we live now, where Christian values are seen as ancient they're seen as backwards. They're seen as misogynist or racist or any other ist that you can attach to it. How dare you backwards people hold on to these traditional values? What's wrong with all of you? And we can see the fruit, the spoiled, the rotten fruit of this mindset in the greater culture, can't we? We experience this on a day-to-day -day basis. But nowhere, nowhere do we see this, the, the spoiled fruits of this attitude greater than in the family. It, it's unfortunate that the right has made Ronald Reagan out to be a huge hero in all things when in 1969, when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, he instituted no-fault divorce. All of a sudden, anybody could get divorced for any reason, and nobody really cares. The government took on itself to regulate something that belongs to the church, that doesn't belong to the government. Marriage does not belong to the government. It belongs to the church. 
to Jesus Christ. And the church, as normal Christians, uh, are to blame. Uh, Sorry, the church as normal, Christians are to blame. The commas are in the wrong place. We are to blame for the marriage crisis, truly. Because when the church is willing to turn a blind eye to the problem that exists within families and the propagation of divorce, we as the tip of the spear are to blame. Just two days ago in Aaron Rand's weekly email, he linked to an article from the New York Magazine, which I wouldn't have read otherwise, in a section called The Cut. And it's an article written by a woman named Emily Gould, and it's called The Lure of Divorce. And Rand summed it up in one word, wow. Wow is an understatement for what I read. Miss Gould walks through a painful journey of her mental anguish, her institutionalization. She went to an institute. This decision while she was institutionalized to divorce her husband, and it, and it surrounded around these, these issues with her competitive nature in her marriage, her needing to be better than her husband, her dissatisfaction with the, the boring domestic duties that had been, had been assigned to her because he was working, thousands and thousands of dollars in therapy, thousands of dollars in drugs, multiple mental health diagnoses. It's a story of a total mental breakdown and her lure and desire to be pulled towards divorce because life will only get better if she gets rid of that husband. The lure and desire of divorce was a solution in her mind to the internal problems of self-worth and all this other absolute selfish nonsense. At one point, she quotes from a divorce book that she read. That's really gross, too, that there are divorce books to read, that there are people capitalizing on encouraging people to destroy families. Satan loves capitalizing on death. Here's what she says. I read more books about divorce. I received an early copy of Sarah Manguso's Liars, marketed as a searing novel about being a wife, a mother, and an artist, and how marriage makes liars out of all of us. In it, John, a creative person, and Jane, a writer, meet, and they soon decide to marry. Liars describes their marriage from beginning to end, a span of almost 15 years, narrated by Jane. And the beginning of their relationship is delirious. I tried to explain that first ferocious hunger and couldn't. It came from somewhere beyond reason. But the opening of that book also contains a warning. Then I married a man as women do. My life became archetypical, a drag show of nuclear familyhood. I got enmeshed in a story that had already been told 10 billion times. I felt perversely reassured that I was merely adding another story to the 10 billion. It seems, it made it seem less like it was my fault. Ugh, this drag, this burden. I have to be someone's wife. I've just fallen into the drag show of nuclear familyhood. Our negative world hates the family. Our negative world hates the family because the family is strong. Because the government and tyrants can't tear apart the family. Uh, Family and marriage are a big deal, but she makes it out to be a big drag, a boat anchor holding you back from all those things you ever wanted to do, all of your heart's desires, all of these selfish things that you've listed that you have decided if your, your spouse wasn't holding you back from, you could go do. See, that's what culture and the pagans and Satan say, because our, our broader pagan culture is a cult of the self. It is a cult of the feelings. It is a cult of doing whatever makes you feel good because it's all about you. And the rampant divorce machine is proof of that. So she's just going to be another story in the 10 billion 
which will make it feel like it's a little bit less her fault. And the unfortunate part is her story is not unique. In fact, 70% of divorces are initiated by women. And there's a giant machine that capitalizes on it, both in lawyers and therapists and a legal machine. But Solomon was right. There's actually nothing new under the sun because people have been rationalizing divorce long before our current negative world. People have been rationalizing their own selfish desires for thousands of years. And that is what Jesus is going to address today with the Pharisees and his disciples and also to us. We are going to see that his words about divorce are needed more now than ever in a culture that the family is breaking down. So he who has ears, let him hear. Verses 1 through 3, chapter 19 of Matthew. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So we see this familiar story in Jesus' travels. Jesus has finished his work in Galilee. Uh, he was talking with the disciples, talking about church discipline and the things that we've spoken about in the last few weeks. And now he's now leaving. He's finished that work and he's headed to Judea and he attracts like normal a large crowd. Jesus has a large crowd everywhere he goes. And as in the past, he encounters the Pharisees. And they are asking questions in front of the multitudes on purpose. That's why we, we need to know there's a large crowd of people. The Pharisees are trying to trick him up and trip him up in front of a large group of people. What better way to, to, to bring down Jesus than to make a fool of him in front of these multitudes of people that are following him? They want Jesus to publicly fail. And so just like today, the Pharisees had come up with all kinds of rationalizations for what they considered a just divorce. For, for when they felt like it was okay to divorce their wives. And the Pharisees then had this tendency to want to get rid of their wives. They'd get rid of this wife to go chase after another one. And so they came up with all kinds of legal rationalizations, all kinds of loopholes that, that fit within their legalistic system so they could justify their actions. Does that sound familiar? That should sound pretty familiar. Rabbi Hillel, a very famous Pharisee who died about 20 years before Jesus began his ministry, he taught, he taught that one could divorce his wife for her taking her hair down in public or talking to another man. You all pay attention to that today. They were living in this self-serving system of rationalized divorce. And so Jesus' response is so great because he doesn't use rabbinic tradition. He goes way back further. He goes back to the very creation of man and woman, verses 4 through 6. And he answered them and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. These words come from Genesis 2.24. He, he's basically using rhetoric. He's using rhetoric and asking these supposed Bible scholars, do you not know your Bible? Don't you remember the way back at the beginning where God said man and woman were created? Now there's an important side note in the cultural soup of genders. God is very specific in Genesis 2.24. He created man and woman. He created two, only two. They didn't get to pick. It's not a choice. 
They were created on purpose as man, as woman, woman created from man. They are separate and unchangeable. It is not a social construct. It is not how you feel about it. It is God that created them, man and woman, male and female, intentional, intentional separate creations of God. And because of this, because of this, man and woman are designed for one another. Man is to leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife. Man and woman, male and female, united together as one flesh, no longer two separate people, but one. Now, obviously, there's a physical part to this. The sexual union between man and woman is a physical way to be joined together as one. But this idea of being joined together as one is so much larger than just sex. It is the complete connection of two people into one. It is for life. It is the lifelong union of two that now become one. I, I say this, share this with you in your premarital counseling. We say this sometimes when I officiate weddings. You are no longer Jane Doe and John Smith. You are now the Smiths. You're the Smiths. You are no longer individuals. You are a whole. You are one. You are, are complete as the Smiths, the thighs. This is why being the Smiths or being the thighs requires self-denial and humility. That word for joined in Hebrew can also be translated as cleave. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And it means firmly joined together with something. Kedushin, you'll recognize that word, is the Hebrew word for marriage. And it comes from the word kiddush, which means holy. Marriage is a holy act. It is, it is designed so that man and woman, two separate, become one in every single way. It is a holy union because it was created by God because God created man and woman. Genesis 2, 18 through 23. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to the, all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is so important, This is now the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam names woman, acknowledging that woman was taken out of man, a helper comparable to him. God made woman for man because it was not good for man to be alone. Men, you should hear that. God didn't say, I made woman. It wasn't good for woman to be alone. I made man. He said it was not good for men to be alone, so he created woman. And he created us male and female so that we would come together in the union and the bonds of marriage. The first marriage was between the first man and the first woman. Jesus is using this, this rhetoric. This is where it kind of is a little ironic in the winsome movement of church. Where everyone just you have to follow the 11th commandment, thou shalt always be nice. <laughs> is that, is that Jesus, Jesus uses the serrated edge here. He's not like, oh, did you guys not read Genesis at some point? Let's go back and read that together. He's using pointed rhetoric to say, do you not know what God's word says about man and woman? 
He's telling him, don't argue with me. This is what God has said. You take it up with God. This is, <laughs> I'm not even using my words. This isn't my opinion. This is what the word of the Lord has said. But they're smart. And they've probably assumed that Jesus is probably going to say something like that. So they retort. Because these are men that know their scripture. These are men that know the rabbinic tradition. They, they're the legalists. They're the ones that found all the loopholes. And so they're probably prepared for some type of theological debate or argument with Jesus. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, the particular passage that they're talking about comes from Deuteronomy. It comes from chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as a wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which your Lord God is giving you as an inheritance. So you can actually understand a little bit better the hardness of man's heart for the ability to take things out of context. A friend of Chad's and mine gave me a sticker. It's on my computer and it says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Right? So taking things out of context allows people to do all kinds of things that God does not actually allow. Nowhere in this particular passage does this passage command divorce. It gives you a scenario where somebody divorced his wife. It wasn't a command. It didn't say it was good. The only commandment, the only commandment has to do with if she returns. And then you can't marry her again. That's where the commandment in this particular passage comes from. That man may not take her back. She has been defiled. Otherwise, Moses is dealing with a very specific circumstance, not blanket for divorce. No, just go do whatever you want. You, know, you don't like her, you detest her, boop, kick her out, here's your certificate of divorce. Most likely this uncleanliness is some type of sexual immorality. Maybe it's something just shy of adultery because adultery was a capital crime. Did you know it used to be a crime in the U.S. prior to the repealing of the um, Ronald Reagan? No fault divorce, thank you. I'm old, that was earlier in the sermon. But it used to be, divorce used to be in America a, a criminal case. There was no civil piece to it like there is now. You would be convicted of a crime that was illegal, and then the penalty was paying the fine for the crime versus the civil nonsense that we exist in here. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees had built their theology of divorce on what we would consider pretty shaky ground. Nowhere did Moses command them or allow people to get blanket divorces. So it ended up being a weak foundation that was incredibly self-serving and ultimately not biblical. And Jesus calls him out on it. And he calls him out on it because he is truth and he is love. And he says in verse 8 and 9, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So yeah, he says, Moses, Moses let some of you divorce, but because of your hard hearts, because of your sin problems, because of your evil, not because God said it was okay. That's an important thing. God never came and said, oh, it's fine. Go ahead. Break apart. Break apart this holy union of marriage. Because in the very beginning, in the very beginning, God made it known 
that man and women, man and woman were, were not women, that's, that's polygamy, he said no to that as well, <laughs> that man and woman were to be joined together for life. That what God joined, man is not to separate. And you don't get to change the rules just because you don't like them. I mean, that, that right there, that right there is the biggest attack on the American progressive church. You do not get to change the rules just because they make you uncomfortable or you do not like them. Jesus drops this big truth on them. He says, anyone, anyone who divorces for any other reason except some type of sexual immorality, and in that case, it doesn't even matter who initiated the divorce. It didn't even matter if the one who was sexually immoral initiated the divorce. And then marries another, it's adultery. That's how serious this is. That's what it looks like in the eyes of God. And if somebody else marries a divorcee, right, then they commit adultery. It is a shame that we have lost the seriousness of this in our culture. I mean, we, we have lost the seriousness of adultery in our culture. Our leaders are constantly caught in adultery, and nobody cares. We're about to talk about impeachment in my government and economics class on Tuesday. And man, there's so many people to talk about impeachment. We can talk about Billy Boy Clinton, right? Nobody cared. That was like the beginning of, well, I mean, he's the president. He's probably going to do these things, so we should probably turn a blind. That's insane. That is insane. We have culturally accepted that adultery is just something that is going to take place. Just like divorce. If, if, if you meet people and they tell you they're divorced, nobody really cares anymore. So, so much so, I was so bothered by this once. We, were, we go to Georgetown, and there's a candy shop in Georgetown where we get popcorn. It's great. And in that little candy shop, they've got the tchotchke stuff that you can buy. And one of, like, there were these coffee mugs that were making fun of people's ex-wives. And, and what, what really broke my heart is that years before, when I wasn't a Christian, I would have laughed at that. And now I look at that and think, how, how tragic is it that divorce and, and, and making fun of the, the holy union of marriage and glorifying divorce has become an acceptable part of our culture? I mean, nobody in pagan culture really actually cares. It's almost an expectation, isn't it? But that's not how God wants us to think about it. That's not how we should think about it. It should be heavy. It should be heavy. The, the punishment for adultery used to be death. And at some point in our positive world of Christianity, there at least used to be shame. There's not even shame anymore. People used to have shame for, for things that, that are sins. There used to be cultural shame, and there's not anymore. In, in the enlightenment, however you feel world, well, I mean, that made you feel good, and you didn't really like them, and you guys kind of fell out of love, so I guess it only makes sense. Now you can finally go do all those things you wanted to do. It's, it's heartbreaking that nobody seems to care in our greater cultural context about the importance of marriage and how we should hate divorce. This is why we must remember the importance of sexuality within the union of marriage. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. And the importance of its sacredness to understand why adultery and immorality is such a problem and really the only grounds for divorce. But the bottom line from Jesus is God hates divorce. Divorce is not permitted outside of one very specific case. And that's that. It's as simple as that. And even in that one specific case, we shouldn't be divorcing. The Pharisees... The church today, our broader culture, need to hear this message that divorce is not acceptable. What God joins, man shall not separate. We as a church here are anti-divorce. Just want to let you know that. 
That's, that's our position. Our position is to follow obediently God's commands and help train up for you all to follow obediently God's commands and help you get through the difficulties that exist in relationships and marriages and life because it's not about you. It's about God. It's to glorify Him. So it's after this exchange, Pharisees are gone, then the disciples inquire to Jesus. They say in verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Like you can logically, Siri just popped on. No, stop. Why does it do that? You can logically see how this could be like the next movement. <laughs> he just told us it's adultery. There's all these pitfalls. Maybe we just shouldn't marry. Maybe we should just like avoid that altogether. I mean, if there's problems and divorce is adultery, and if somebody marries somebody, it's adultery, and then there's this possibility of sexual immorality, maybe the easiest piece is we just don't marry. Just don't even participate at all. And today's pro-single culture and the winsome church movement that, that helps prop that up needs to hear these words, verses 11 and 12. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now you all know what a eunuch is, right? It's actually what we do to men who undergo body mutilation when we tell them that they can become women. It's castration is what makes people eunuchs. That's another industry that's evil and is making a lot of money. And so many of these things, if you want to follow kind of the path of evil, just follow where the money goes. But that's an industry that is actually physically making eunuchs, the castration of men. You see, if part of the, the joining of husband and wife to be one together is a union that fulfills the dominion mandate, right, to, to go forth and have children and build families, then eunuchs probably aren't a whole lot of good, are they? So Jesus gives three categories. First, there's people that are born that way. Not much you can do. Second, there are people, because of their crime or their status at that time, were made eunuchs. There were cultural things uh, that, that caused people to become eunuchs. So those two groups, they can't really help it. There's nothing they can do about it. But there is another group. There's another group. There's those that claim that they are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They, they have abstained, and they're claiming it's for some type of pietistic reason. right? Voluntary celibacy. And Jesus says, nope. That's not a good enough answer. If you are in a position where you actually can't get married, then you shouldn't. But the rest of you, the desire should be for marriage. Now, God may not take you in that path. But the desire, the desire is not, you're not supposed to say, well, I'm just going to be super holy and super pious. Me, 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 me. See where the problem with all this is? He says, if able, if able, then you, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. This is the way that the Lord has designed the world. You don't get to just ignore it and not do it under a false auspice of piety, so you don't have to deal with self-sacrifice and commitment and the difficulty that comes with living together with another human being. Because this family is what it really boils down to. Marriage is about self-sacrifice and commitment. It is... Two becoming one is so much greater than sex. It is, it is so much greater. It is so much greater than butterflies in your stomach. I mean, the, the woman in that article I read to you, she even says at the beginning, it's like this, Wah! and then what happens? 
Because Hollywood and, and Hallmark have lied, and Disney especially, to everyone. Like, oh, I don't have that feeling anymore. I'm done with you. Right? Kick her out. Kick him out. That's as close as you can get to me kicking anything. You see, two joining together is bigger than sex. It's bigger than butterflies in your stomach. It's bigger than romance. It's bigger than nice gestures or promise to bake pies. That's an inside joke. If you don't know the reference, you can talk to Kristen and I afterwards. It's two people becoming one. When Kristen and I became the thighs, we made a commitment until death do us part. We made a commitment to become one, no matter what life has thrown at us. And life has thrown some interesting things at us. We can do that because God is at the head of our marriage. Each and every marriage has three people in it. This is not some polyamorous crap that you hear in the world outside. That's, that's a problem. That's not going to work, by the way. Each and every marriage has three people in it. It has the husband and the wife and God. Even people that don't acknowledge that each marriage has three people in it. It has the husband and the wife and God. Like I said, many here have had journeys that involve sins in marriage and also divorce. And our culture venerates and promotes and profits off of divorce. So what do we do? What do we do as the body of Christ? What do we do as Christ's church? What do we do as people who are redeemed? We are here to fight against divorce. And we do that by, by working and sharing a gospel of good news that works to build strong and robust Christian families and Christian marriages. Marriages that know that Jesus Christ is the third yet most important in person in the relationship. That he is the foundation of the relationship. Marriages that are built on the foundation of biblical principles last because they are self-sacrificial and they are in commitment. This changes lives. I've learned so much about godly marriage and my marriage to Kristen. We both have sinned, first against God and against each other. We participated in sin before we were married. We had sin when we got married. We, we, we were criticized by some people for getting married really quickly. We even justified a legal wedding before we had a Christian wedding, and we lived together during that period of time, which we wouldn't allow any of you to do. But we've repented from these we, we've grown from these. We've committed ourselves to a study, a deep study of God's Word and a life lived in constant obedience to Him and in repentance and confession of sin with one another, the idea of keeping short accounts. And now, and now, I understand so much deeper what godly marriage and self-denial and service and love, sacrificial love is all about. I know what it is like to be joined from two into one. I know what it is like to do life in full commitment it's unshakable commitment. And it's funny, even though immorality is, sexual immorality is this permissible reason to divorce, it's not funny. But the church should never, ever permit divorce. The church should always promote confession and repentance and forgiveness and growth. I'll try not to segue too much, but... We have some friends that are involved right now in a defamation lawsuit because some people have said some things out loud and in public that are blatantly false about some church friends of ours. So they hired a, a pretty powerful law firm after years of, you know, if, it, if up to you, be at peace with everyone, to, to go after these, these, these things. 
And I th one of the things, the areas of defamation that comes against our friends is that they've allowed people who have repented from their sin back into the church. <laughs> this is how you can tell pagan world loves death. These are people that have acknowledged and, and turned from their sinful past to be redeemed and reborn in Jesus Christ to live new lives. Like, the reason that we want to encourage marriages to stay together, even if there's sexual immorality, is because they will grow stronger and better through Jesus Christ. They will be able to conquer anything through, through confession and repentance. And the families will be stronger. It, that's what God-honoring people do. God-honoring people follow God's commands. And God-honoring people repent and confess when they don't. The formula for a successful marriage is so incredibly simple. It, it's so simple because marriage is supposed to be a representation of Jesus' love for the church. The church is called the Bride of Christ. Listen to these words of Paul in his epistle to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might be present to her, uh, that he might present to her, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. I apologize. I've moved to the New King James. I've been reading these verses in the ESV for years. I'm getting used to new words. Same words. Close. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as they love their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. One of the biggest complaints in that New York Magazine article from Ms. Gould, who wrote it, was this feeling that she needed to compete with her husband. She was upset that him being older, that his writing career was ahead of her writing career. She was upset that she had been relegated to mere household duties. She would never have the prestige and the fame that he had. And it was this long, fussy and whiny and gross explanation about why things just won't so fair for her. And that's what it was. It was paragraph after paragraph of stomping around like a little child that my life isn't fair. So many comments about this need for fairness. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Why can't we just all have our individual wants? Why can't I do all the things that I want to do? It was so fussy. And she missed the whole point. Now, thankfully... The end said they stayed together. Doesn't seem like they're very joyful. <laughs> I'm sure they're still financially pumping thousands of dollars into a therapy machine that will keep them in that therapy machine for their whole lives. But at least they're not divorced. But it does not sound like they are joined together as two who have joined together as one. 
At least they don't realize that they're supposed to be. They're, they're like dry drunks that are just trying to grin and bear their way through sobriety. We're supposed to be here. We're going to make it through. Her and her husband are missing the foundation that they need for a marriage that overflows with joy. We had a guy at the house for dinner on Friday. This is going to be a new, we might have to make shirts. I, my shirt list for you is like 10,000 shirts long. But I, I texted him. We hadn't seen him in a while. It was a guy that's in the men's group and came over and had some dinner and a whiskey. And then he, Tristan went home with his son to hang out and spend the night. And I texted him. I was like, it was so good to see you. We need more of that. And he wrote back and said, my bucket overflows. That's what marriage is supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the Christian life and joy is supposed to be. It's not that your cup overflows. It's your bucket. Your bucket overflows. Even in times of sorrow and even in times of distress. The only successful marriage will be the one that follows the commandments of God. One that is full of self-denial and commitment. See, self-denial is remembering that life is more than what you want, more than what your heart desires. And nothing, nothing, I promise you, will teach you that more than family and children and marriage. For marriages to work, they must acknowledge God as the head. They must acknowledge that men and women have different roles. They must acknowledge that authority structures exist and authority structures are not bad. Everybody submits to somebody The question is, who are you submitting to? Submission is not a bad thing. In fact, submission is a right and proper thing. Husbands are the head of their wives, just like Christ is the head of the church. The church is subject to Christ, and so wives are subject to husbands in everything. Women, do you hear that? You are commanded to submit. It's not a choice. You're not commanded to do it if you feel like it. It is an imperative. In the Greek, there are two imperatives in that section. Submit and it's love. The imperative given to the woman and the imperative given to the man. And the one for the woman is submission. You're commanded to submit. And the other is love, which is for the men. So women, you must submit. But men, before you get all Andrew Tate red-pilled and think this is super cool, the weightiness and the gravitas rests on your shoulders. You needed a helpmate. It did not say that women needed a helpmate. It said that you couldn't do it alone. You are not nearly as strong as you think you are because you cannot go at this alone. You needed a helpmate. And so you are to love your wives. And you are to love them in the manner that Jesus Christ loves the church. The manner in which you love your wife is the manner in which Christ loves the church. He demonstrates how you are to give yourself for her. How you sanctify her, your queen. She is the glory of the glory of God. Man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, which makes woman the glory of the glory of God. She is the crown that sits on top of the crown. And you are to give yourself for her. Husbands are to love and protect their wives as their very own body. It's that sacrificial. Nobody detests or hates their body. So you are to love your wife as you love yourself. And if you love your wife, you will experience love. Because one does not hate their own flesh. She, your wife, is of your flesh. And you two become one united Members of his body created by him. 
Because our marriages are designed to reflect Christ and the church. That is why divorce is so catastrophic. Men love their wives, and wives are called to respect their husbands. It all makes sense. It's all the stuff that, that the people who don't know the Lord are yearning for. Women to feel loved. Men to feel respected. And it's not this like, okay, here's the deal. I'll submit once he loves me like Christ loves the church. Or it's not like, well, I'll love her when she finally decides to submit to me. This is not like a quid pro quo. It's not a transactional kind of a thing. I'm going to wait till you do it. No, I'm going to wait till you do it. You're both commanded to do these things, whether you feel like it or not. And when either of you fail to do these things, it breaks down. And you all know this. That's why we keep short accounts. And when we repent and confess our sin and forgive to come back into a place where husbands will lead and women will submit, but husbands are leading in sacrificial love. And when both parties do what God has commanded them to do, it is fruitfulness and joy. We are living proof of that. We are absolute living proof of that. And we're, it, it, it's, proof, it's proof in how quickly we can rebound. Because God has given us the tools to rebound, to come back into communion with each other because He is the head of our marriage. And this is why godly marriages don't live in resentment or frustration or discontent or fussy. It's not fair. Because it is two that are united together working for the kingdom of God, working for the Lord. This is why godly marriages recover from sin quickly. Because of confession, because of repentance, short accounts, we were talked about the command to forgive. Not seven times, 70 times seven times. Why'd you leave that toilet seat up? That's not a problem in our house, actually, but I had to pick on something. There will always be headship. The question is, is the headship going to be from good men or is it going to be from bad men? There is always headship from God, whether people acknowledge that there's headship from God or not. In problematic marriages, abusive marriages, immorality that is in marriages, the only solution is God not divorce. You can come up with a thousand yes buts and I can retort quickly confession and repentance and forgiveness and God. God can cut through the deepest hearts. He's cut through ours. We're all here. God can give life to the hardest hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Not you will keep my judgments and think about them in the peace of your heart forever. You will keep my judgments and do them. When you walk in Christ's statutes, when you live by His ways, the fruits are unimaginable. They really are. When you live a life of all of Christ for all of life, everything is richer. The sexual union is richer. Doug Wilson says that, that sex with your bride for long periods of time through your life is history. It's a connection of history. That, that a place where nobody else can come into that place, it is beautiful, incredible history. But so is the rest of your intimate life because your life being united together as one is intimate, not just sexually, but in every way. You know each other's thoughts. You know all of the things because you are doing life together, not as individuals, but as one. And there's hope. There's so much hope in that. It's beautiful because 
You might have to dig yourself out of the medical pit, the surprise medical pit. It might be financial. It might be uh, external pressures. It might be a million. You could lose a job. It could be a million things. But you're doing it together as one. As husband and wife. What God has joined together, man cannot separate. And it is so strong. It's a cleaving. Our family is living proof of this. Your families are living proofs of this. God hates divorce and he loves life and he loves marriage. Divorce produces spoiled fruit. Godly marriages produce the richest, most joyful feasts. They do everywhere. <laughs> it's like, it's... Disney needs to, well, Disney doesn't, but somebody needs to make a movie about real marriage and the joys in real marriage, and the noise in real marriage, and the mess in real marriage. It's great, and it's a lifelong commitment. Divorce produces spoiled fruit, it's destructive, it leads to death, it leads to broken families, it leads to such a mess. I pray that we are a community of people that live in joyful, fruitful, and redeemed marriages. I believe that we are a, a people that fight against the broader culture of divorce, that encourage people, encourage people to root their marriages in the love of the Lord. We want people to experience the love of the Lord through the love that we have in our families, the commitment and the self-sacrifice. That's why we invite people to our homes. Pastor Brito said in an interview, the, the interview I sent out to the, I'm going to call it the Christ Church Chat, what else was the other one I came up with I wanted? To, it was another alliteration with all the C's. The Christchurch chat something. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Oh, it was the Christchurch church chat. That's what it was. It was the Christchurch church chat. I know there was another C in there. But I, I sent a video. Yuri talks about kind of what is the CREC, who we are. But one of the things that he said is that people should be able to experience the joy of the Lord by the way we dance and the way we sing and the way we feast. And they should do that in our homes. It's so incredible. We sing, we dance, we feast, and people get to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Family, Jesus changed the world with 12 people. We can change the world with the group that is in here. We should be part of the solution that helps end the divorce industry and helps end the divorce machine, just like I want to end the abortion industry and the murder industry. These are industries that capitalize on death and we should be part of the group that solves them. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Let us pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your word, for this time together, for marriage, and for Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to strengthen us. We ask you to strengthen our marriages, our commitments, our relationships. We pray that we will always be reminded that you are the head over those and that we are to serve you first. We pray here that husbands will love their wives in the manner that Christ loved the church, and wives will submit to their good husbands. And from this, the fruitfulness of joyful, godly families, we will find. And so, Lord, lift us up in this calling. Lift us up in our ability to do these things. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.